0: Welcome back to a bit of fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. Welcome to season three. If you've been around since the beginning, it's good to see you. Thank you for coming back. If you're new, welcome. This is a safe space where I talk about pop culture that has no real relevance to anything. I also throw in random stories about myself, and you, dear listener, get the chance to hear about a weird girl who likes movies too much. This season, of course, we're exploring movie musicals. We had a little bit of a break with Christmas. I hope you had a wonderful holiday. But we're back to another list day. For this episode, we're diving into my top list of musicals from the 1960s and 70s. If you missed the episode about the 40s and 50s, I highly recommend starting there or here. You know what? You do you. It doesn't matter where you start. So we're just going to dive in so that this podcast doesn't get too long into my top musicals from the 1960s. So at number five, I'm going to go with Mary Poppins from 1964. I've decided it just can't be helped if someone makes it on the list multiple times. I went back and forth on what should actually make this list. It just has to mean there's something special about that person, and there's definitely something special about Julie Andrews. So, number five on my list of favorite musicals from the 1960s is Mary Poppins. The precocious Banks children, Jane and Michael, are in need of a new nanny, so being practical human beings, they make a list of the qualities they would like to see this person inhabit. Their grumpy father tears up the list because he's the worst, and the list is scattered to the magical winds, eventually finding Mary, a mysterious umbrella-wielding sorceress who responds to an ad that Jane and Michael's suffragette mother posted. And that's when the fun really begins. They sing about sugar while cleaning the nursery, they go on a graffiti adventure with a chimney sweep named Bert, laugh so hard they start to fly and run along the rooftops of London. The Debbie Downer of the family, Mr. Banks, then forces the children to go to work with him to a stuffy, cold, soul-sucking bank where some old dudes try to steal their money. Then they all fly a kite together. The end. (laughs) That's part of my favorite thing to do is write the summaries of these movies. Why is this on the list? Mary Poppins is kind of terrifying not lollipop guild from the wizard of oz terrifying but there's a cold aloofness about her that is unsettling and yet she's julie andrews she's practically perfect in every way then you have dick van dyke pulling off the worst english accent in pop culture history but being the most charming energetic bundle of light and on top of the memorable dance sequences and songs that bring together two small children and their gruff father you get a scene with edwin Uncle Albert's laugh is infectious and worth the watch alone. So that is why it's on the list. Best song? I'm partial to A Spoonful of Sugar, our intro to Mary and Her Magic. It's probably my favorite. Number four, My Fair Lady, came out in 1964. I've got some fundamental issues with this one, big ones. And yet, I come back to it time and time again. You've got this uppity phonetics professor, Henry Higgins, who agrees to a wager with an equally uppity friend that he can make the brash and crude flower girl Eliza Doolittle into a presentable young woman in society. So when poor Eliza then moves in with these distinguished gentlemen and is basically tortured in body and emotion for a number of weeks in preparation for the embassy ball, they plan to just kind of throw her to the wolves and being the resilient and capable woman that she has always been despite her new refinement she steals the show and hearts of the other attendees but unfortunately for poor eliza who has come to regard the grouchy professor his cold proud heart is more difficult to melt so after her marvelous display at the ball eliza leaves higgins and finds her way to his mother's home When the professor shows up the next day, they argue as only two people with feelings for each other can do. Higgins continues to be blind to the fact that all Eliza wants is respect, so she storms out. Higgins laments on his way home, realizing that her companionship means something to him, so he turns on the gramophone to hear her voice. He'd been recording her voice and her horrible accent, and Eliza walks in and finally gets to see that he does, in fact, respect and care for her. About those fundamental issues. A man calling a woman baggage is tough to stomach. Higgins tries to justify his behavior by insisting that he treats everyone that way, but it doesn't make him a decent dude. It's that resilience factor that makes me love this movie. The resilience that you always see in the ugly duckling to swan trope. From the very beginning, Eliza believes she is far more capable than her circumstances. She believes in herself, and that's why she ends up at the professor's house. And while the professor's torture... Improves her speech patterns and her accent and her posture. She remains willing to fight for her worth with the same tenacity to the very end. And Audrey Hepburn is beautiful and hilarious. So that is why this one is on the list. Best song, The Rain in Spain. The breakthrough moment when she gets so excited that she she has said something according to his standards. Now number three. Okay, no apologies about this one. Yes, it is absolutely ridiculous, but I love it. Babes in Toyland came out in 1961. You heard my older brother make fun of me about this one in the um, 80s superlatives in season two. That's okay. We're in the world of Mother Goose, and she's super excited about the upcoming wedding between Mary Contrary and Tom Piper. The whole fairy book town is excited. So excited they're singing and dancing. Because, duh, this is a movie musical, but unbeknownst to Mother Goose and the Besada betrothed, Mr. Barnaby, the villain of the story, has plans to stop the wedding and marry Mary himself to get her inheritance. So Barnaby hires a couple of crooks, Gonzorgo and Rodrigo, to both kill Tom and steal Mary's main source of income. Little Bo Peep, one of her wards, she's raising these children. I don't know how they're related or how she ended up in that position, but... The two crooks, they steal little Bo Peep's sheep. No husband, no income. She's then forced to marry Barnaby to stay afloat. But they get the bright idea that they can get paid double for him. Gonzorago and Rodrigo do. One's for Barnaby and one's for selling him to a band of gypsies. Tom. That's who they're selling. This is getting confusing. Well, the, the plan backfires and them when the gypsies come to town and Mary discovers that Tom is actually alive and well. Spoiler. Then the happy couple dive headlong into the forest of no return to find Bo Peep and the other children who are in search of the lost sheep. They find them quickly, the kids, not the sheep, and then stumble upon Toyland where the toy maker, played by Ed Wynn, again, is frantically trying to prepare toys for Christmas. Mary and her posse help, only to be caught by the angry Barnaby, who's not going down without a fight. But the toys are made, and the villains are stopped, and Tom and Mary get married on Christmas. The end. (laughs) This is not a high-class musical. It is a silly live-action Disney flick that is disgustingly colorful and sappy, yet it's populated with nursery rhyme characters that are familiar Is as sweet as candy, and is helmed by Annette Funicello as Mary Contrary, and the Scarecrow from *The Wizard of Oz* Ray Bolger as Barnaby Barnacle. He made this is his second appearance in the musical list too, very interesting. And the guy, his name is Barnaby Barnacle. How do you not love that? Uh, So this is just this is one of my childhood favorites. It is probably. One of the movies I've watched the most in my life. It's kind of the one I like to put on if I need help going to sleep. It's just that comforting movie for me. Best song, I Can't Do the Sum. So when Mary, grief-stricken, believing Tom is dead, uh, and she starts to wonder how she's going to make ends meet, she starts singing about her home budget. (laughs) And it's kind of technicolor. Gotta watch it. It's a good time. So that was number three. Number two in my list of favorite movies from the night, or mu- movie musicals from the 1960s. Music Man 1962. Harold Hill is a con artist and a seller of dreams. He travels across the country, convincing unsuspecting townspeople to give up their hard earned cash so that their sons can be a part of a boys band that never really seems to come to fruition. He teaches them the minuet and D, promises that instruments and uniforms are on the way, collects the cash, and then skips town. That's until he ends up in River City, Iowa, where where they've got some trouble with a capital T that rhymes with P that stands for a pool. He meets a librarian who quickly sees it through his bravado, but he also sees the dream of a boy's band and the way it wakes up the town. Why is this one on the list? I mentioned that Robert Preston's performance of Harold Hill is my favorite male performance in a musical back in episode one of this season with Valerie as we talked about movie musical superlatives. He's so smooth with the manipulation, but it's that moment when he realizes that his heart has changed that is just beautiful. You can see it in his eyes, and also because there's a librarian who is a fierce protector of intellectual freedom. Go, Marion the Librarian. Best song, of course, is Marion the Librarian. Come on now. We librarians get so little love in pop culture that you get to hold, you just got to hold on tightly when it when you get it now she does shush people a lot and we don't typically do that in public libraries anymore unless they've just gotten out of hand but man i love it i love it and now the big reveal of my number one favorite from the 1960s that would be of course the sound of music came out in 1965 I'm sure you know how the plot goes, but there's this nun named Maria who isn't great at being a nun. She likes to go outside and sing to the mountains when she should be praying and had a lot of trouble being silent when she she should be silent at the abbey. So the mother superior ships her off to a mansion to serve as a governess to seven precocious children who are being raised by their militant and overwhelmingly attractive father slash widow, widower, Captain Von Trapp. As her bond grows with the kids, who are excellent singers, she realizes that she has also developed feelings for Cap, who is, one, engaged to a baroness, and two, being wooed by the Austrian army to join the SS. She tries running away to the Abbey to get her bearings, but the mother superior basically tells her she's never going to be a good nun, and she has to go after the life she wants, so she returns to the mansion to discover that Cap has also fallen in love with her. With the kid's blessing, the two get married, they perform at a family singing competition, and then they go for a hike in the Alps towards Switzerland to uh, escape the German army. (laughs) The end. This one, of course, is a classic based on a true story and is everything going for it. Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer, the overwhelmingly attractive captain... Songs that you won't soon forget and absolutely tug at your heartstrings when he sings, and I know it's not really him singing, but one can just pretend when he sings Edelweiss, and especially at the, the competition, the singing, whatever that is, competition, and it, his voice breaks and he has trouble singing. Ah, it's just beautiful. There's twirling for the sake of twirling and the most romantic dance sequence in movie musical history, in my opinion. So, yep, yeah, that's why it's on there best song goes to lonely godard I, it's it seems a little unconventional just about any puppet that is not a muppet is terrifying and there are there's some very interesting puppets in that particular scene but i've always just loved that song and I, I sing it quite a bit yes i do it that should be a theme now isn't it i i break out into song a lot a lot I'm sorry to those around me. So that was my top five from the 1960s. It does feel blasphemous not putting West Side Story on the list, but I had to follow my heart. If you have not seen the new West Side Story that Steven Spielberg just released, I highly recommend it. It was fantastic. I was nervous. Man, was I nervous going in. Uh, but, but I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, but my heart said Mary Poppins needed to be on the list. Julie Andrews deserved two spots because she is, she is a queen. But now up the 1970s. I think this may be my least favorite decade of musicals. Finding five was hard. It was hard, Uh, but I'm going to do my best here. So coming in at number five, I'm going to go with Bedknobs and Broomsticks came out in 1971. Another live action Disney movie. This one feels a little unconventional, but some of the songs are just permanently cemented into my brain from childhood. So it's 1940 during the Blitz, and three siblings, Charlie, Carrie, and Paul, are sent to the countryside from London to escape the bo- the bombings. They are reluctantly in the care of Miss Price, played by Angela Lansbury, whom they discover is a witch learning spells to defeat the Nazis through a correspondence course. So, this professor back in London is sending her spells that she is learning on her own. But when she learns that the course is closed without providing her with the final spell, the spell that she believes can help her defeat the Nazis. She uses an enchanted bed knob and a magical bed to transport her and her new wards to London in search of professor Amelia Brown. Turns out Brown is a fraud and has been sending spells from an old book. He just found to get money and Miss Price learns that the final spell is engraved on the star of Astaroth, the medallion that belonged to a sorcerer. Um, and that's when the fun starts, because this this medallion has been stolen by animals. Uh I'm I'm not, I don't think there's a way to explain that. Um, so Price and her companions then travel to the cartoon world of Nambumbu where they sing and swim and play rugby before successfully returning home with the medallion and the spell that can mobilize inanimate objects that Price then uses to fight the Nazis. <laughs> I love it. I love I love that plot so much. It's my sentimental pick for the 1970s. Angela Lansbury actually gets to sing. She has, this is her second um appearance on one of my lists as well. She was in The Harvey Girls back in the 1940s, was it? Um with Julie Garland, but she didn't get to sing in that one. So I'm glad she got to sing in this one. Uh The Kids Are Quintessentially British. Mr. Banks from Mary Poppins plays the jovial con man Professor Brown, and then ugh, the cartoon segments are ridiculously fun. I just love it. I think I like the cartoon segments because the animation reminds me a lot of the animated Robin Hood which is one of my favorites. You can hear me talk a little bit about that back in season one when I talk about animated Disney movies. The best song when they are in the animated world, they're they're trying to get to Nambubu, and they're swimming in the ocean, and they sing the beautiful Briny. I won't sing it to you, but I sing that one a lot as well. So that is number five from the 1970s. Number four. Oh, Okay. Number four is Rocky Horror Picture Show. Came out in 75. This plot is complicated and convoluted, but a a basic breakdown is something like this. When two exceedingly prudish and boring squares from Ohio named Brad and Janet are stranded on an empty stretch of road, they find themselves asking for help at an eerie mansion where the occupants are in elaborate costumes celebrating an annual convention. The leader turns out to be an alien bisexual transvestite slash mad scientist and he has brought to life a tall muscular ridiculous blonde man named rocky what ensues is a is a mishmash of sexual hijinks between frank dr frankenfurter the prudish squares and the eye candy rocky before some of frank's underlings kill their leader and plan to return home to their alien world and their ship is the mansion so he like boots out brad and janet's like you if you don't want to come with us to to our world you better get out of the get out of the house (sighs) i've already talked about him for this season but the man is crazy talented this of course is on the list because of one tim curry Uh, he just he he is you can't take your eyes off of him when he's on screen and it doesn't matter what role he's in the way he embodies characters completely is is unreal i just i love him so much and the way brad says janet uh, i love that that always cracks me up there's a cult classic and then there's rocky horror a movie and a character frankenfurter that is just cemented itself into our pop culture lexicon it's it's just made a place where it's it's created its own I don't know, its own world of sorts with the late night, midnight showings and the interactive elements. I, I love how it has taken on a life of its own. I probably will never go to one of those midnight showings uh, because the idea of being pulled up onto a stage to do weird, ridiculous things, while sometimes sounds fun in a setting where I might not know all of them, uh, all of what you're supposed to do, I'm like, mm, no, thank you. Best song, Time Warp. Very good song. All right, number three. This one is, I I surprised myself a little with this one. It's equal parts trippy and creepy. And that would be Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Came out in 1971 as well. Almost all of the good musicals, in my opinion, from the 1970s came out in 71. But Gene Wilder, he keeps it from going off the rails. So we, of course, have Willy Wonka, the reclusive candy maker who hosts a contest. Find a golden ticket hidden a piece of his candy and win the chance to tour the candy factory with him. So you have Charlie Bucket, a very poor unassuming boy who is just desperate to win, but he can't afford to buy ridiculous amounts of chocolate bars looking for a ticket. Just when he thinks all hope is lost, he finds some money in a storm drain on his way home from school and spoiler finds the final golden ticket hiding inside the wrapper. So Charlie and his grandpa, Joe, who, hadn't gotten out of bed in years. Um, I, I feel like that's kind of a weird plot point, but we're going to go with it along with, um, a kid named Augustus Gloop, a girl named Violet Beauregard, Baruch Salt, and Mike TV. They enter the wonderland with their parents. Uh, that is the Wonka factory where they are taken on an adventure with the eccentric Willy Wonka and his Oompa Loompas. And While all of the kids get greedy and steal from Wonka along the way, it's Charlie's humility and sincerity that wins him or makes him the heir to the Wonka fortune, to the empire that Wonka has created. So he's going to live there and he got to fly in a glass elevator. It was a whole thing. So why is this one on the list? Well, of course, it's Gene Wilder. That's why this one is on the list. All the Gene Wilder, all the time. There's a weird gentility to the character, and mixed with Wilder's comedic flair and timing, just really, really works. Match that with some memorable songs and lots of candy, and you just have a winner. It has to be on the list. Best song? Pure Imagination. I do like the Candyman song at the beginning, and of course Veruca Salt just kind of steals the show when she's you know, sing about how she wants it all, and there's golden goose eggs, but my favorite is probably Pure Imagination, Let Wilder Shine. Number two, we're almost done with this list, guys. Number two also came out in 1971, Fiddler on the Roof. This one was new to me. I I had actually never seen this one until I started doing a little bit of research for this, but I really enjoyed it. I realized I knew all of the songs, so it was not completely foreign to me. I just wasn't familiar mostly with the context of the story, the historical context of the story. So it's pre-revolutionary Russia, and there's a small kind of seemingly isolated, but I bet that's all of Russia if you're not in one of the cities, Jewish town filled with a lot of really hard-working men and women. Poor, but hardworking. So throughout the story, Tevya, a poor milkman with traditional values and many daughters struggles with their romantic their modern romantic ideals poor guy gets his heart broken a lot through the movie as he wants them to hold to to, to tradition and they are falling in love and wanting to kind of go off and do their own thing and then pile on top of that a growing anti-Semitic sentiment that is starting to threaten the village and, spoiler, forces them to pack up their homes onto small wagons and leave. So at the end of the movie, Tevya has not only basically lost three of his children— um, who knows if he will ever see them again but he's also lost his home and um, his culture has beaten threatened too so this was sad it's beautiful and humbling at times but so sad I my heart just broke for him and his daughters and his wife and his town my heart just was a broken mess for three hours it was a long movie it was so long at one point I, I had to like pause get up and stretch it's like my goodness this is going on forever but it's on the list because it's it's relatable in a way I didn't expect. The idea of the struggle and, and consequences when tradition meets modern progressive ideals, I found really fascinating. I think a lot of people, despite what their, their religious beliefs are, can understand that struggle, wanting to hold on tra- to tradition and seeing the world kind of move on from that as well. Really like that one. "Best song: I really like if I were a rich man." I'll tell you I liked him a lot (laughs) all right which leaves us with number one hopefully you know what it is could you probably guess what it is um this is when I have gone to two interactive sing-along viewings of this makes my heart sing and is also had the um the best TV special live TV special in my opinion they've tried to do several of them we talked about how Annie came out I just can't watch Annie I couldn't do it um but this one of course is Grease came out in 1978 so you've got a a boys gang the T-Birds and a girls gang the pink ladies who are too cool for school at Rydell High Danny is a T-Bird he spent the summer at the beach wooing a girl Sandy from Australia and then Goes back to school in the fall, heartbroken that he's never going to see her again. But, spoiler, she unknowingly registers to attend Rydell. Doesn't realize he's there. Gets super excited to see him. And then she, too, is heartbroken when she quickly finds out that he isn't quite what he seemed during the summer. The sweet, chaste boy she drank lemonade with as they splashed in the ocean. So, Danny spends the year trying to win Sandy back. He starts to play sports to earn a Letterman sweater. Uh Sandy spends the year as an acquaintance of the Pink Ladies but too goody-goody to become a member. They get together, they break up. They go to a big nationally televised dance doesn't end well for them. They deal with friend drama, they drag race cars, and they eventually come back together at the end of the year at a school carnival where they get into a flying car. The end. It amazes me just how much Went over my head as a kid. Seriously, "Grease Lightning" is a filthy yet entertaining song, and that's the whole iconic movie for you. Adults playing hormonal high school students singing about love and sex and beauty. School. I I like movies that are kind of a snapshot of a time, a year in the life of these teens that is problematic but still amuses. Ah, "Summer '11" is a problematic song, but it is the best song. It is the song that is most fun to watch as they are, especially the T-Birds dancing around on the bleachers. It's hilarious. I also really like the song Sandy that's that Travolta sings at the drive-in movie theater. Going to the drive-in is one of my all-time favorite summer activities. Uh, I have a dream of one day owning a drive-in movie theater. <laughs> showing one new movie and one old movie it's going to be a good time we're going to have some good food um, it's on my bucket list of things to do but every time I go to the the movie I either have to play that really loud or I just sing it really loud I, I no longer do that on the swings in front of the, the screen because I think it would be really weird and potentially creepy for a grown woman to be singing while the kids are running around um, but that's okay you know that's okay so that was my top five in the 1970s. And that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. I would love to hear what is on your list. So hop on Facebook, leave it in a comment on the post, Instagram, leave it on a comment on the post. Just let me know what your favorite of the 1950s and 70s, not 50s, 60s and 70s is. I would love to hear that. Thank you so much for listening. It is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about can join the fun as well. Let's make this a party, guys. Or if you want to share the podcast, that would be awesome, too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at, at @nomegirlm. Now, on Facebook is a bit of fun with Emily. I don't post a lot, so you don't have to worry about me spamming your accounts. But I do have a lot of fun, especially on Wednesdays with impossible questions. Sometimes they're not impossible. Sometimes they just make you think a little, but it's a good time. But go have yourself a bit of fun today. I will see you next.